Mass Effect is reborn as a point-and-click adventure game. It's This Week in Retro for the week of March 8th, 2021. High-resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. That's right, this week's stories include Mass Effect LucasArts style. Multiplayer through Bluetooth on classic consoles. We explore the curse of the video game movie. And Intellivision comes to the Evercade. All this and our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Now, John, there will, be, there will no doubt be lots of listeners uh, to this show who love LucasArts point-and-click adventure games, and, and that includes me. I absolutely love those games. And let's not forget Sierra, but LucasArts, they were just a cut above, weren't they? Love yes. their games. And I really regret not having kept all of the big box games that I bought in the 90s because they invoke a huge hit of nostalgia for collectors these days, and with that, a high price tag, of course. But it's not just collectors and us old crusties that they inspire. Fans of the Mass Effect series of games who were disgruntled by the ending of the series set about creating their own animated parody film a couple of years back, and before long, that animated film evolved into a point-and-click adventure game, which they called The Adventures of Commander Shepard. Now, if we fast forward to today in 2021, that same group is now revisiting their point-and-click adventure game. And what they're doing is they're demaking it. It's a demake of a demake, if you like, a Mass Effect Russian doll of retro <laughs> gaming. And uh, this has all come about because Mass Effect is being re-released in a remastered edition in 4K. It's got updated graphics. It's got all the fireworks that go with that. And so the group decided that a demake would be the perfect answer to the remastering. Now, while the official game steps up, their point-and-click takes us back further in time than their original one did. User Paraboli on Reddit, who is part of the team who made the first point-and-click game, has been sharing concept art for the demake, which includes a shot that looks very much like Full Throttle from LucasArts in its style, as well as other concepts that go further back than that. We've got an Indiana Jones-style interface, and in that one you still had all of the commands, such as use, talk, give all of those things in uh, as buttons at the bottom of the screen. Many will remember them. It all looks very familiar to retro gamers. So, John, we do get a few point-and-click adventure games these days, but not nearly as many as we used to. And there is a, a big black hole in gaming, I think, in, in the charts. As soon as LucasArts and Sierra stopped making those games, there was this void in the charts and in my life. I'd say, John, I really do miss them. <laughs> what, what was your favorite among the, that, that genre? It's hard to pick one. Um, Point-and-click adventure games are one of my favorite genres, uh, so I've got a lot. Uh, my favorites are definitely from the EGA era, I would say, of PC gaming. This is where, you, you know, for the first time you had the full spectrum of bold, bright colors, but before the VGA era, where shading made games more realistic and less cartoony. I really like the cartoony look of the EGA era games. Um, of the two major players, you know, Sierra and LucasArts, I always preferred LucasArts because I really hated how easy deaths were in the King's Quest series and the rest. And in, in a lot of cases, you can just screw up your game if you miss picking up an important item and then you travel to a new location and then you save your game not knowing that you know you missed an item a lot of times it's impossible to go back and get it again and that was just so frustrating i had to restart so many games because of that um the lucas arts games i feel uh, learned from the mistakes of sierra you know sierra's games came out earlier 
they encouraged exploration. They wanted you to try things and mess up and, and not give you that fear of death uh, and, and that, that was so prevalent in the Sierra games. Uh, my all-time favorite is probably the Monkey Island series, but I also enjoyed a lesser-known Amiga game called Flight of the Amazon Queen. Did you ever play that one, Neil? I did, yes. Great game. And I believe it was actually prototyped in the early days as an Amos game before oh. they then reprogrammed it in C. So, yeah. Interesting, interesting fact <laughs> yeah now how about you neil what are, what are some of your favorite point and clicks for me it was the indiana jones games indiana jones and the fate of atlantis in particular because it was a huge graphical upgrade from the previous game the last crusade which was fantastic but there was no movie with this game to, to mm -hmm. tie in with so, so you didn't actually know where the plot was going to take you which i really right. liked um i also loved the dig um that was a, another lucas one and it had the most wonderful soundtrack that um it, it was a cd based game so it really took the the soundtrack up to another level compared to previous games uh very much like stargate in its atmosphere uh, the movie um maybe not so much the series don't want to offend any <laughs> stargate sg1 lovers out there but i i, I love prefer the movie um and i just loved the whole feeling of that game the dig it was really nice yeah i'd pick those yeah, two I'll, I'll always remember the dig because when we first got a computer with a cd rom uh, my aunt gave us some games that I guess she'd finished with, and uh, the, one of the games was Mist, and one of the games was The Dig, and so that that was my introduction to the world of, of CD-ROM gaming. So yeah, I agree, The Dig was great. Um, now we've seen more point-and-click games in recent years. It's kind of had a renaissance uh, here of late. Notable examples being uh, Thimbleweed Park and Dolores, the the mini follow-up adventure to that. Do you think they will ever be as popular as they were in the 90s again? Mm, it's great to see those games popping up again. Um, and some might actually argue that they are quite popular now. Uh, I'm not familiar with all games in the mobile market, in Google Play and, and in what whatever Apple have to offer in their store. But there are, it seems on the face of it, lots of explore and poke the screen style mobile and tablet games out there and a user base that's far greater than there ever was in the 90s thanks to these devices now granted many of these games are very very casual but you know i'd love for disney who now own lucas arts um if they took a look at the potential market and said okay let's get the gang back together let's make some modern lucas arts adventure games for this market i don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility it's just a question of does anyone at disney know that they have that audience waiting for them do they know that they're sitting on this potential gold mine um, i'd like mm -hmm. to hope that they they do um yeah so john just thinking again about this mass effect game if you could pick any game like they have here and then demake it turn it into a point and click adventure game what would you go for oh that's a great question um <laughs> I think the recipe for success on any point-and-click adventure game is having a wide variety of locations. Uh, you've got to have a lot of places to explore, and you, you've got to have a huge cast of characters to interact with. If you look at, uh, you know, Sam and Max, for example, they're going all over the place. They're talking to all kinds of different people. They're having all kinds of wacky adventures. To me, that's the pinnacle right there. Um, mm -hmm. One of my favorite platformer games on the SNES and the Amiga is The Addams Family. 
Uh, I think I can't believe that there has not been a point-and-click adventure Adams Family game. It seems like a, a perfect match. You go through the Adams Mansion, you're discovering secrets, finding hidden passageways, you're solving puzzles with all of the ghoulish contraptions that you'd find there, and you're interacting with all the other family members. It, it seems like a no-brainer. Uh, I think that there was a CGI-based Adams Family film that was released just a couple years ago. The developers could use those renderings to help speed things along, and, and they could get this thing going. Um, what, what do you what do you think, Neil? I think that would be fantastic. Um, I guess the closest thing to it would be Elvira. You could lift the Elvira right. adventure game and drop the Adams family into it, uh, just in various locations to help you. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> perfect. Uh, yeah, and what you Elvira, say about Sam? She's and... still current, right? She's still she's still current. Yeah, and what you say about Sam and Max? That's spot on because a new location was often your reward for solving the puzzle because you could right. be, you could get stuck in an area for so long trying to solve this puzzle. Uh, and then that was your reward. You go to the carnival or whatever the next location was uh, and you'd have a whole new place to explore. So I loved that. But personally, I really enjoyed um, a game called Operation Stealth back in the day. This was by Delphine Software. And aside from a truly horrible copy protection system that you had to fumble over to get into the game, the game itself was a, a James Bond style point and click adventure. And it was in the US a James Bond game. You may know it as James Bond 007 The Stealth Affair. But hmm. for reasons over here, I guess, I, well, I don't know what the reasons are behind it. There's got to be some licensing issues. But in the UK, right. it was just called Operation Stealth. So I really like the Bond style spy theme in a point and click adventure game. And I'd like to go for more, more of that. And this is, this is cheating. This is massively cheating because I'm picking games that were based on movies in the first place <laughs> but <laughs> let, let, let's take golden eye from the n64 let's demake that into a point and click or, or maybe live and let die from the eight bits and and turn that into a point and click adventure game i know i'm cheating but <laughs> I, i'd love to see more of them anyway if, if this is your type of game then do check out the demake of mass effect using the link that you can find in the show notes neil as i think back on my misspent youth Sometimes I reflect on my favorite memories growing up in front of a screen, and I've come to the conclusion that even though I spent many an hour leveling up my characters in Final Fantasy or trying to find all of the stars in Super Mario World, it's the multiplayer experiences that I most treasure. Um, how about you, Neil? Are, you, are your best memories passing a joystick back and forth with your friends or huddled alone in front of a screen trying to puzzle out the next bit of a quest in Ultima at 3 a.m.? You've got them in early, haven't you? Ultima, Final Fantasy, <laughs> Golden Adam's Eye, Family, yep. <laughs> all of John's games. Um, yeah, multiplayer, if I just drill down into what I enjoyed the most back then, it was probably the sibling rivalry aspect of it because I grew up with a slightly older brother. And that was a huge part of my youth, whether it was playing Kickoff 2 or Speedball 2 or trying to set the fastest lap time on Lombard RAC Rally, that was a favorite, or Stunt Car Racer. These were really great times. And, and then slowly, John, the distance grew between us. It, it began with one machine on one desk that we shared. And then we had a long no modem cable between rooms and we had head-to-head -head Duke Nukem. Mm -hmm. And then we had network cables from one end of the house to the other. So the distance grew greater. And then, of course, we went online with the internet. And, and my multiplayer experiences became ever more distant and, and more abstract. And in a way, more abusive because that anonymity <laughs> came with voice chat right. and all of the abuse that came with that. Even That's more when the real than, trash talk started. 
Exactly. Even more abuse than, than an older brother, unbelievably, can give you. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, I'm right with you. Multiplayer was the best when it was on one single machine. Really enjoyed that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, between tiny affordable computers like the Raspberry Pi or more expensive FPGA boards like the Mister and, of course, the original hardware, there's no shortage of ways to play your favorite games. But less attention is often paid to the upgrading of the technology of the way we play those games. I'm talking about the controllers. Um, for me, playing retro games with the original joystick or control pad, no matter how uncomfortable or awkward, is an essential part of the experience. Um, but I realize that I may be in the minority on this one. Uh, not everybody wants to wrap their mitts around a trauma-inducing ColecoVision or Atari 7800 joystick when more ergonomic solutions are readily available. Now, Neil, where do you stand on controlling your favorite classic games? Do you have to use the original controller, or are you not quite so much a purist? Oh, it's the age-old question, isn't it? I think mm -hmm. the best game in the world is an unplayable mess with the wrong controller. So mm -hmm. it's really as simple as that. Uh, that doesn't mean it has to be the original controller, though. Um, I'd sooner play NES games with a PlayStation pad than an original NES pad. But, mm -hmm. but it's a fine balance, isn't it, between authenticity and awareness of the pad in your hand, just being aware that it's causing a problem for your gameplay or it's causing pain or, or whatever. And that should never come into it. So, yeah, you shouldn't be aware of the pad. It should, it should just seamlessly work for you. And whatever pad works for you works for you. I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah, good point. Uh, so if you are a fan of playing multiplayer games on original hardware and uh, using contemporary controllers uh, isn't an anathema to your way of thinking, I've got just the product for you. Uh, this is according to a story from Hackaday. There's a hardware developer named Jacques Gagnon who has created something called Blue Retro. This is a Bluetooth adapter that plugs into a variety of classic consoles and computers and gives you multiplayer Bluetooth capability using modern controllers like a PS4 stick or an Xbox One controller. Uh, this is an open source project that's based on the ESP32 chip, which is a favorite of retro tinkerers everywhere. And that's not all. Uh, being a Bluetooth connection means that any number of non-controller devices are theoretically supported, including keyboards, mice, and uh, the Xbox Adaptive Controller for game players with mobility impairments. I think this is awesome. You know, what, what a great tool to get more people into the retro hobby. Now, Neil, out of your extensive hardware library, what systems controller would you gladly chuck out the window to replace with one of these? Well, I mentioned the NES controller, and, and that's a controller from before the word ergonomic had been penned, I think. Um, and that's okay. It is okay for a quick pick up and play. It just gets uncomfortable for me with a longer game. It would be, either be that or it would be the Atari Jaguar because that's such mm. an odd one. Um, mm -hmm. It does get a lot of flack. It comes with that joypad that's more like a telephone, part telephone, yeah. part joypad. It's got so many buttons on it. And I sometimes wonder if the Jag might have been better served with an analog stick. And that would have helped it to stand out and perhaps encourage developers to be more adventurous in the games that they were making rather than so many of the 16-bit ports that we got to a machine that was a lot more powerful and could have been shown off to do a lot more if people had been encouraged. Or even some of the games, some of the AAA games that made it, like Alien vs. Predator, that would have been great with an analog stick. Would have really Absolutely. enjoyed that. So yeah. let's go, I'll go for the Jag. Uh, not purely because of ergonomics, but because of that what-if factor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to me, the whole story of the Jag is one big what-if. 
Uh, you know, you've got so many things where if if they just taken a left turn instead of a right, maybe maybe things would have worked out differently. But I agree with you that an analog stick, if they'd included that or even swapped it for the D-pad, it would have made the controller stand out. Uh, for me, it's got to be the Atari 7800, though. Uh, you can see that the engineers at Atari made some kind of an attempt at ergonomics by making the controller longer so it sat better in your hand. But having the fire buttons on the sides of the controller, it's just incredibly awkward. The buttons are super spongy. And the joystick itself, um, it may be the worst performing joystick I've ever used. It's, it's just, there's nothing good about the 7800 controller. Um, and because of the way, the worst thing is because of the way that the two buttons are wired, you can't just plug in a Genesis pad and get full functionality right out of the box. Uh, luckily, there are some excellent replacement control pads being made by Retro Game Boys, spelled out cool guy style with a Z, uh, on eBay that you can pick up uh, for the 7800 uh, that give you that two-button functionality in sort of a NES-style uh, control pad format. So, uh, anyway, if you're eager to get this authentic controller couch co-op thing going, the Blue Retro isn't currently for sale, but the plans are posted in full over at the link in the show notes at Hackaday, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if an enterprising hacker made a bunch of these up for sale sooner rather than later. Now, John, we must say a big thank you to our sponsor for this episode, RetroRewind.ca, and I got a package from them. And for those who aren't watching on video, I'll explain what's come through the post to me. Uh, it's really interesting because... I just like to browse their website to see things that I didn't know existed and I didn't know I needed. For example, these little bits of card, these are head vibration protectors for your Commodore 64 or other five and a quarter inch disk drive. You can actually buy these at Retro Rewind and slot them in. Um, the disk drives would have come with these originally. So if you're that into your retro and you want everything to be authentic, and uh, as close to new as possible, you can pop these in. I think they're only a couple of dollars. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, I think they're actually $1. $1 will get you one, $1. of those. <laughs> they're especially essential if, you are, if you're transporting your, uh, your drive to a local event and you don't want all the innards jiggling around in the car, pick up one of yeah. those. And other things I got include the neat PLA for your C64. The PLA often goes pop and uh, you, you just can't buy the originals as new anymore, but there are replacements for them thanks to Retro Rewind. The SKS64 longboard, so you can have multiple kernels on your C64. Mm. And we've mentioned it before, and we'll mention it again at the end of the show because there's a chance for you, the listeners, to win one of these. It's the Amiga Denise chip RGB to HDMI adapter, which turns your Amiga, uh, well, it gives it HDMI out in a really easy slotting solution using a Raspberry Pi Zero. So keep listening to the end of the show and find out how you can win one of those. And thank you to RetroRewind.ca for sending them in and for supporting the show. John, from video game demakes in our earlier story to video game movies, there's not exactly a long and illustrious history of video game movies, uh, are there, John? <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's take stock here. You got the Super <laughs> Mario Brothers movie, uh, the this, this Street Fighter II movie, um, the, uh, the, the all-time classic Rampage starring <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson, no, no, Neil. No. There's not. There's not a long history of great video game movies. <laughs> I, I've not seen the Rampage one yet either. I, I haven't seen the Doom one. The, those are two that I need to see. But I, I'm not expecting great things. No. <laughs> but apparently, all of that is about to change. Yeah, we've heard it before, haven't we? And that's thanks yes. to a movie called Max Reload and the Nether Blasters, which promotes itself mm. as a gaming film made by gamers for gamers. 
The plot of the movie follows a small town video game store clerk, Max Jenkins, who accidentally releases forces of evil from a cursed ColecoVision game. And in playing the game, he unlocks that evil curse and he and his best friends must defeat it at its own game. Is this stirring anything in you, John? Listen, Neil, I want no part of any product marketed by gamers for gamers. <laughs> that just sends that just sends chills of horror down my spine. It's like the body spray by gamers for gamers. No, thank you. <laughs> to me, this kind of advertising smacks of the worst kind of pandering. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. But just to give us some balance, it is very easy for us to be instantly cynical of video game movies um, just because of the expectation that's been set. You know, mm-hmm. we, we just expect it to be terrible. And that's really not fair. So I, I do want to treat this movie on its own merits because I would actually love a movie that represents retro gaming, a movie that could perhaps become a cult classic for the ages and, and captures all of those things that we love about retro gaming and retro computing, John. Um a movie that kind of came close would be Ready Player One in recent years, which of course was based on the book of the same title. And I am one of those people who's firmly in the book was better than the movie side of the fence on that one. But it was still a very enjoyable movie. But I, I think rather than capturing the essence of retro gaming in Ready Player One, it was often more a game of spot the Easter egg and then kind of patting yourself on the back and congratulating, your, congratulating yourself at your nerdy knowledge that you'd spotted something, you know, rather than a feeling that it was really embracing the retro culture fully. You you hit the nail on the head, Neil. Um, mm. I actually, I, I was not a big fan of the book or the movie Ready Player One. It, it, it was so packed with references to, you know, 80s pop culture, gaming, TV, all that stuff. It was almost like a parody of itself. Uh, the whole book to me can be summed up as, hey, remember this thing? Wasn't it cool because it was a thing from when you were younger? Except it's 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 in virtual reality now, and you know what it is, so you're awesome. Um, I realize that this isn't a popular opinion for the millions of nerds that lost their minds because somebody made a book and a movie, quote-unquote, for them. But I, I don't know. I just loathe any piece of entertainment which is entirely self-referential. Yeah, and I worked through the second book, Ready Player Two, recently, and... Um, it took a while to get into it because I forgot just how many of those references were. In the first chapter, you were just bombarded mm-hmm. with exactly yeah. that. Hey, remember this? Yeah, I was, I was playing with it yesterday in the cave. <laughs> 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 but uh, this movie, Max Reload, has, it has no such book to translate onto the big screen. So that's a bit different. And it has some recognizable um, actors, including Kevin Smith. Will Wheaton and several faces from the recent Cobra Kai series and it Mm. promises to be in a mixed style so it will forge live action with Saturday morning cartoon style flashbacks and also some pixel art inspired segments so that's okay so maybe maybe like a Scott like maybe like a Scott Pilgrim sort of thing yeah yeah I'm getting that feeling from the marketing Mm -hmm. so far so I am holding holding out hope for this one Uh, the ColecoVision tie-in and the US-centric production makes me think that it is going to be very, very American in its story and, mm-hmm. and its telling of the American side of video games. So I am braced for that, and I'm accepting that I won't see an Amstrad CPC in this movie. <laughs> you never know, or a ZX Spectrum. But I'm going to be optimistic, and I, I hope, I really hope that it's the video game movie that, that we've all been waiting for. What are the chances, John? Am I setting myself up for disappointment, do you think? Well, 
I mean, you guys already got Bandersnatch, so you, you've already won. You've already won the video games on TV battle. Uh, there's 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 almost a hundred percent chance that that was better than whatever this is going to be. Um, I, I will say that I'm intrigued. They chose the ColecoVision as the format of choice. Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I'm still going to watch this. If I'm on a plane and this is one of the choices, or if it appears on Netflix, then I'll definitely give it a watch. But I have, uh, shall we say, muted expectations. Sure, I think that's fair enough. Expectations have been set. Uh, Max Reload will be available on all major streaming platforms in the US and Canada at first, and then later worldwide in spring or summer of 2021. And uh, no doubt John and I will report back our joy or disappointment when it's out. Yes. I don't know what it is, Neil, but in this day and age of ever-increasing screen sizes, even when I'm not out and about, sometimes I just feel like playing a retro game on a portable device. Uh, and these days, there's no shortage of options. Uh, in addition to older systems that have been hacked to run emulators like the PSP, you can also buy flashcards for handhelds like the Game Boy Advance, the Atari Lynx, or of course, you can just spend some of your hard-earned dollars on eBay buying up old cartridges and gaming the night away. But what if you have a hankering for a retro-minded portable that doesn't require you to depend on old hardware or delve into the murky waters of uh, downloading ROMs from sketchy websites? Well, there's a solution for that, and it is called the Evercade. Uh, the Evercade is a handheld developed by UK-based Blaze Entertainment, and it allows you to play a variety of games on the go from various consoles with a clear conscience. I don't know what one of those is, Neil. Uh, the Evercade originally launched last May, and what appeals to many uh, is, uh, is its collectability aspect. That's right. Instead of having a web-based storefront uh, you, that you connect to to purchase games, uh, you actually buy physical cartridges. These cartridges hold around 10 games apiece, and so far they've been released with collections of games from the Atari 2600, the NES, the Super Nintendo, and the Mega Drive. But that's not all, Neil. Uh, subreddit user Starcade2084 reports that a new Evercade release is on the horizon, and it features none other than the Mattel Intellivision. Try and contain your excitement, Neil. Uh, so, first of all, before we delve into this release, what do you think of the Evercade as a platform and its physical cartridge sales pitch? It sounds like it's a gaming device by gamers for gamers, John. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I like that you mentioned uh, having a clear conscience. I don't know if you ever did this or if any of our listeners did. Did you ever reach a point in your video game life? I did this when I had the Amiga, where I looked at all my pirated games and I thought, I feel bad about this. I'm going to do something about this. And I, abs I actually got rid of a load of my pirated games because I wanted to come good and have a clear conscience. Did, did you ever do that? Did you ever reach that point? Um, I n never did. But what I what I never got rid of pirated games, and I never got rid of. For me, it was more of a music thing than a gaming thing. Uh, I you know when Napster was when it first made its appearance, I downloaded the entire internet. Um, but what <laughs> I did do was I was like, you know what? From here on out, if I really like something, if I listen to it say more than twice, I'm going to make every effort to purchase this thing. And of course, after the iTunes Store came out, they, that became a lot easier. So I went through that in music, but I I can't say because I was a console gamer. I never had just, you know, piles and piles and piles of discs hanging around. But I do appreciate the fact, Neil, that you had a come to Jesus moment and, and you started down <laughs> the, the, the right path. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I did the same with Napster, actually. If it wasn't for Napster, I don't think I would have bought half as much music or gone to half as many concerts as I did. So there is something to be said for uh, the access to media that, that piracy does give you. Anyway, that's a whole Absolutely. other story. Let's come back Pro to the Pro-piracy viewpoints this week on <laughs> This Week in Retro. So coming back to the Evercade, uh, I was cynical at first, John, but I actually quite like it. The, the device itself isn't super expensive. It's less than £100 over here for a fun little handheld and mm -hmm. a bunch of extra carts. You'll get three or four extra cartridges for that £100 price tag with it. And the cartridge packs are like little curated packs of games. So you get the Namco Museum collection or the Interplay collection. And recently there was an Oliver Twins collection with all the Dizzy games on there. I saw them promoting that. And I quite like that. It shows that a bit of thought has gone into the compilations. And um, it's not just like randomly downloading ROMs, like you say. You get a little package. You can appreciate how they are interconnected, how they're made by the same company, the time periods that they came out, the advancements that came with each game. I quite like that. A bit of thought's gone into it. Yeah. How about you, John? Uh, what part of me thinks this is a cool idea? Um, I like the idea of being able to look forward to releases, just like we're talking about the Intellivision mm, cartridge yeah. coming out, getting excited for that, uh, you know, ordering the game, having it come in the post, and then you, you take it out of the box, you put the box on the shelf. The way these boxes are designed, uh, they, they look like they're part of a series, so they look really cool, you know, all up on the shelf. But, you know, Neil, I'm almost 40, and my shelves <laughs> are dangerously full. Um, I, I, I don't think that I'm the target demographic for this one. If I'm going to buy boxed games, uh, they're probably going to be, uh, you know, retro games from the past. Uh, and another one of my concerns is how well this thing actually plays. Uh, just looking at the unit itself, uh, the D-pad just screams Mad Cat's knockoff to me. It doesn't look like a quality D-pad. The buttons don't look great, the placement on the device, but... I, all that said, I've never used one of these things. Maybe it plays like a dream. Um, this would definitely be a try before you buy Scenario. Now, Neil, have you actually used one of these before? I haven't used one, but the thing reviews pretty well in terms of mm -hmm. build quality. I mean, it's not five out of five stars, but it does review right. pretty well. Some do complain that the D-pad and the buttons are in a slightly odd position. I think they're, they're quite high in mm -hmm. relation to the screen. Um, but on the whole, it's well regarded for the cost. Uh, it's not on. It's not a replacement for a switch by any means, but I've also read that sometimes, and this is interesting, sometimes the games that you receive are actually the inferior ports. So you might get a home version of a game instead of the arcade version. An example of that is the Namco collection, and on there you get the NES version of Pac-Man, Dig Dug, and Xevious instead of the arcade. So that would give it much more of a Famiclone kind of feel because it's. It's been exactly that in those instances using those examples. So definitely check out what version of the game is on the carts and don't just assume that they're all the arcade or the, the top quality version of the game. It, it really comes down to what the Evercade can run in terms of the power that it's got. Yeah, that's 100% no good. Putting the NES version of these games instead of the arcade originals, it's an affront to God and man, Neil. Uh, <laughs> I, know, I know why they did it. Uh, just like you said, the, the NES versions are in the correct aspect ratio. I'm sure they're easy to port. Uh, you know, there are literally Christmas ornaments that play the NES version of Pac-Man in a little tiny arcade you know, machine. Um, what gets me 
is the box makes no mention of that. It doesn't say anything. I realize that there might be copyright concerns actually putting Nintendo on the box. But they need to put, because this thing is, you know, as you said, by gamers, for gamers, they need to put a little small text on there saying, these are console ports of the arcade originals. These are not the arcade originals. That probably wouldn't do a lot for their sales numbers, but it would go a long way in the whole, you know, integrity and honesty thing. But anyway, getting back to our story, in the fall of this year, Neil, 12 games from the Intellivision library are coming to the system. Uh, it looks like Astro Smash, Night Stalker, and Frog Bog are all coming. They're all going to be part of the, the package. And, and then, of course, there are going to be some other titles as well to round it off. Now, I'm not the world's number one Intellivision expert, but I have played all three of these games, and they're all solid titles. Um, what gives me pause is where they will go on future releases. Um, if you're not familiar with the Intellivision, its calling card has always been the addition of a numeric keypad located above its kind of strange disc-shaped joystick. And a lot of the standout games used that keypad to great effect. Uh, the biggest example is probably World Series Baseball, uh, where you could switch between all nine players on the fly using the, new, the numbers one through nine on the keypad. Super great game, without a doubt, the best uh, baseball game on that generation of consoles. But Without that functionality, all you're left with is a lot of clones that could have been at home on any of the early consoles like the ColecoVision or the 2600. So getting back to our first story about the Bluetooth adapter, playing these older games just doesn't feel right to me without that original Intellivision controller, mm -hmm. especially when you're losing functionality in the process. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes you just have to accept that it's not going to work on a piece of hardware, no matter how much you want. No matter how much you've paid for the license to be able to republish mm -hmm. these games, uh, I think you're right, John. A game that requires a keypad isn't suited to a handheld device. So I'd feel shortchanged, I think. Yeah. But if you are an Intellivision fan and you have an Evercade that you're currently collecting releases for, this is probably a must-buy for you. Um, no price has been announced yet on this particular package, but it looks like the other releases have sold for around £15. Not a bad price for a collection of 12 games to play wherever life takes you. So it's time for last week's community question of the week, and that question was, is Zelda a role-playing game? First up, we've got Reddit user AudioClops, and he says, no, it's a fantasy action-adventure. Short and to the point. No. That's right. <laughs> uh, the next one is Cyclaxia. It depends how you define RPG, but for me, the key indicator of an RPG, as Wikipedia says, involving some form of character development by the way of recording statistics. Since the only Zelda game to do that in any meaningful way is Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link, I don't think The Legend of Zelda is an RPG, and neither is the rest of the series. Also, Wikipedia calls it an action-adventure game, and I agree. And following up on that, Chris RR says, nope, it's an action-adventure. And he says, uh, in concurrence with Cyclaxia, I think the defining feature of an RPG, including the tabletop RPGs from which they're derived, are character statistics. I think it's pretty unanimous, isn't it, on the no front from our listeners. But we, we must give a special mention to the fourth answer on the Reddit subreddit, which is from Shishaki, uh, or Shishakli, who says, next week, is Ultima even a fun game? Oh. <laughs> Fighting words. Can, we, Fighting can words. we ban people from the subreddit? <laughs> <laughs> Wield that hammer, Neil. So, uh, now... This week's community question of the week that you can jump on right now is 
what game would you like to see demade into a point-and-click adventure? We talked about Mass Effect being demade into a point-and-click. What is the perfect candidate for you? All you have to do is head on over to the This Week in Retro subreddit and upvote your favorite response. We'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the show next week. Now, John, I mentioned earlier that thanks to RetroRewind.ca, we have an Amiga RGB to HDMI adapter to give away to one of the listeners. Anywhere in the world, it will be shipped internationally by Retro Rewind. What have our listeners got to do to be in a ch- with a chance of winning this, John? Well, all you have to do is go on to Twitter and tweet about where you like to listen to This Week in Retro or how you like to listen to it. And then just put in the hashtag, This Week in Retro. That's the important bit because that's how we're going to form our random pool of contestants. So tweet about uh, where you like to listen to This Week in Retro. Use the hashtag, This Week in Retro. And we will draw a random uh, Twitter post and uh, send you some instructions. And you can, uh, we will send this RGB to HDMI adapter right to your door. Perfect. And do make sure you use that hashtag because that's how we'll search and find the entrance. So hashtag This Week in Retro. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.